One of the greatest blessings, I think, that we have on Sunday mornings um, throughout this year is seeing those testimonies. Um, At this time, if uh, Salem kids, if that's you from first grade through fifth grade, um, you can go ahead and be dismissed to go back um, for Children's Church. Well, as you know, we are um, spending this year and we are working through the Word of God, all the way through the Bible, looking at God's big overall picture of His story according to His Word. And we're going to jump right in here, right at the very beginning with three passages of Scripture, okay? These are going to be on the screen for you. You don't have to turn anywhere quite yet. I'll have you turn somewhere in a few moments. But here's three passages of Scripture that I want to kind of launch today with. Okay, first of all, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 16 and 17. But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction, the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Joshua chapter 6, verse 20 and 21. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3, and verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Today we're continuing our story, our journey of looking at the overall big picture of God's story according to His Word. And honestly, uh, today is a topic that's pretty difficult to wrestle with. Why did God tell the Israelites to kill everyone? Men, women, children, oxen, sheep, goats, donkeys, all of it. Why did God do that? You know, I, I um, got to this passage or this topic knowing the last couple of months that I'm going to preach this topic. And uh, I have wrestled with this in uh, the last couple of weeks in ways that it, I don't tend to wrestle with passages and with, with thoughts, with concepts, the way I did this one last couple of weeks. Because it's hard. This is difficult. Why would God tell the Israelites to kill everyone the way that he did? Why would he do that? Because there's times in which the, the, the God of the Old Testament is difficult to understand. And honestly, sometimes we would rather have the God of the New Testament, right? The God that's full of mercy and grace and he's all loving and all of that stuff. We'd rather have that God than the God of the Old Testament. The God of the Old Testament seems to be um, grumpy, right? The God of the New Testament is a much more pleasing person. Um, if you've thought that before... If you thought, you know, I would rather have this God of the New Testament than the God of the Old Testament, then you are not alone in that. In fact, several years ago, there was an anonymous um, caller that called into Focus on the Family, the radio show, and they asked this question. They said, why is God so angry in the Old Testament and so loving in the New? 
I continued on. A, a non-Christian friend of mine has, has used this question to plant a seed of doubt in my mind. He argues that the scriptural picture of the Lord's nature and character is inconsistent and self-contradictory. This has really got me thinking, the person said. Now, I've had several people, um, several of you come to me as you've been reading through God's Word this year, and uh, you've had similar questions and concerns. Why is God the way that He is in the Old Testament? Because that's some hard stuff to read sometimes. Now, I want to make sure that you hear me very correctly at the, at the very beginning of this sermon when I say this, okay? God never contradicts Himself. Never. He's not the grumpy old man in the Old Testament who somehow, somehow turns into the loving, cuddly grandfather in the New Testament, okay? That's, that's not God. God's character, his, his nature never, ever changes. In fact, we see just as much of the love and the grace and the mercy in the Old Testament as we do the New, okay? And we see just as much of God's justice and righteousness and wrath in the New Testament as we, see, as we do in the Old Testament, the, 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 the problem with this question always kind of comes back to a perpetual misunderstanding of God, always. Richard Dawkins, um, you know that name when I mention it. Richard Dawkins, probably one of the smartest people who's ever lived. He was an atheist. He passed away not too long ago. He's a classic example of someone who did not understand God. And while Dawkins was alive, he wrote extensively about God, specifically arguing against creationism and in, uh, against intelligent design. In his book, The God Delusion, here's one thing he wrote, okay? Here's what he said. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Did you catch that word? In all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynist, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, uh, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Now you say, Pastor Kim, did you practice that? (laughs) Absolutely, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Folks, do you know what that tells me? First of all, it tells me that Dawkins owned a thesaurus, Okay. It also tells me that he had a very bitter view of God, didn't he? That's some bitter language that's used there to describe God. Now, there is no way that I could um, withstand an intellectual argument from Dawkins. He's, he's brilliant, but was a brilliant man. There's no way that I could stand up with him in that. But if I did have the chance to push back on this statement just a little bit with him, I would argue that there is no way that he could truly understand God because he didn't know God. There's no way that he could truly understand God because he didn't know God. He didn't know him in a personal way. In fact, every time he talked about God, it was in such a way that shows us that he believed in the, or or believed that the existence of God was nothing more than a concept. It was never a reality for him in any way, shape, or form. It was only a concept. Now, as I approach this topic today of of talking about um, what God commanded in the Old Testament, and and as we wrestle with why would would God do that, why would He say that, um, we're going to do so in a methodical way, all right? And if you're here today or you're watching online and and there has never been a time in your life in which you entered into a relationship with God, that is, you have never repented of your sin, surrendered your life to Jesus, then honestly, part of what I say today is going to be pretty crazy, 
But if there has been a point in your life in which you have trusted in Jesus Christ, then it's going to make a little bit more sense because you've got a relationship with God, and ideally you know God instead of just knowing about God. Now, let's be honest here. Um, We will not always know exactly why God does what he does. We won't know everything at all. But what we can see as we move through Scripture today and as we talk through this topic, what we can see, and I think we will see, is more of the character and nature of God. And that's going to feed our trust in Him as believers. Okay? My goal for us all this morning is to leave with a great appreciation of the character and nature of God. So let's, let's launch out here, okay? i got seven main points as we work through this. Main point number one is this. As creator, God has absolute rights of ownership over all people and places. God has absolute ownership rights over all people and places. God is the creator. That's what we find all throughout the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 reads this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2, talk about the possessiveness that God has over all of creation. It says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and all and, and, and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. In the book of Job, uh, Job is, um, is in the middle of this excruciatingly difficult time in his life. And in this chapter of Job, chapter 9, he's talking about the greatness of God. And how God created the earth and how he didn't only create the earth, but he sustains the earth. Okay, in talking with his friends who have come to see him, he makes this comment. Job chapter 9, verse 12, he says, who will say to him, in other words, God, who will say to God, what are you doing? In other words, there is no one who has the right to ask God what in the world he's doing. Because God is sovereign and because he created the entire earth and because we are his creation, we don't get to question God about what he's doing in a way that somehow makes us think that we've got a right to somehow change God's mind. A pattern that we see all throughout the Bible is that God's or that godly people often ask God the question of why. God, I'm experiencing this difficult time. Why is this taking place? Or God, um, I'm going through this in life. What are you doing? Right? But they don't do so in such a way that, that elevates themselves to the place of God. They, they acknowledge the sovereignty of God. They acknowledge that they are his creation. They acknowledge that they are his children. They do so in a respectful way. But we don't have any, any right to go to God and say, God, what are you doing with this? You need to change this right now. Why? Because he is sovereign and he is the creator of all things and all places. I've got a statement that, that I've used with you before. Only the creator has the right to tell the creation who or what they are. If I'm going to go build something, right, I am the creator of whatever it is that I'm building, and so I have the right to tell whatever that is who or what it's going to be. That's God, the creator. God has sovereign and absolute ownership rights over all peoples and all places. There is no room for questioning that fact, okay? But number two, God is just and he is righteous in all that he does, God is just and righteous in all that he does. I want to emphasize that word all, okay? We've talked about this before. What does all mean? Come on with me. All means all, and that's all all means, right? So God is just and righteous in all that he does. You say, well, Pastor Kivett, do you have a biblical basis for that? And where do you, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, I'm glad you asked me that question. Go to Psalm 145, okay? Psalm 145 in your Bibles. Turn there right now. 
What we're about to find from this passage is that God is gracious, he is merciful, he is righteous to all, get this, who call on him. To all who call on him. Psalm 145, I want you to note as we read this how the word all is used here, okay? We're going to read verses 8 and 9 and then jump down to verses 17 and 18. Let's read this out loud together, all right? You ready? Verse 8, the Lord is gracious and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Hold on just a second. Um, Do you know what it means to read out loud together? Let's try this again. Psalm 145, starting in verse 8, okay? The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. Okay, now jump down to verse 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. All right. Verse 17 there said that God is righteous in all his ways. Now, don't mistake that as a term that's only positive, okay? Don't mistake that as an only positive term. Yes, God's righteousness is good, in regards to providing a relationship with him, eternal life, sustainment for everyday life, all of that, God's righteousness is good. However, God's righteousness is also harsh for those who do not call on him in truth. That's the wording that's used there. God's righteousness is harsh for those who do not call on him in truth. Because he is truth, and in him there is no lie, there is no evil, no wickedness in any way, a major part of his righteousness is that he must always act according to what is right. There is no wicked, there is no evil, there is no deceitful, there is no impure way about the nature of God. Everything he does is just and right. Everything. The reality is, and this leads us to our next next point here, the reality is that all of us deserve God's justice and none of us deserve God's mercy. From the time that sin entered into the world, we have all been born with a sin nature. Okay, we have broken God's law and his requirement for holiness. The penalty for disobeying God is death. Billy Graham was preaching um, his, his Los Angeles crusades back in 1963. And I love what he said here. He said, when God created man, he was perfect in the Garden of Eden. There was no war, there was no hate, no lust, there was no sin, there was no suffering, no hospitals, no jails, no police force. A wonderful world. And this is the kind of world that God meant it to be. And God gave to man a priceless gift. He gave him the freedom of moral choice. But tragedy struck. Sin came in. Where did sin come from? Nobody knows how it ever entered the heart of Lucifer, son of the morning. Let's just accept the fact that we have a moral disease that pulls us down. We've sinned against God. We are a planet in rebellion. And God is a holy God. Because of our sin, we deserve God's justice. Because of God's holiness and our sin, none of us deserve God's mercy. Yet God, in his love for mankind, and in accordance with his nature and for his glory, gives mankind mercy anytime they seek him. Anytime. That's one of the most beautiful aspects of God imaginable. 
that he would provide mercy to the worst of sinners. You know, a few moments ago, we sang that song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Right? How vast beyond all measure. In other words, there's no way to measure God's love. That he would give his only son to make a wretch like Kivit. Or to make a wretch like you. His treasure, right? Folks, all of us deserve God's justice. None of us deserve his mercy. Yet he abundantly loves mankind to the point of lavishing his grace and his mercy on us. And we've been talking about the, the God, okay? The justice of God. We've been talking about the create, how he is the creator, sovereign ruler of all. We've just been talking about the love of God. We're going to make a hard right turn here for just a moment, okay? With number four. The Canaanites were enemies of God who deserved to be punished. The Canaanites were enemies of God who deserved to be punished. In fact, the, the, the Canaanites were a wicked people. Uh, they, they, would, they were so wicked that they sacrificed their babies to false gods, to their own false gods, okay? They were known for their witchcraft. They were known for their vast immorality. They were known for brutal, torturous tactics when it came to war. If there is anyone who could be characterized as a wicked people in general who deserved to be punished, it is the Canaanites. And they're judged for their wickedness against God. I was reading this week, and one author made the point that it's not even like they hadn't heard about God. In fact, they had heard about God. Remember where Abraham was called to? He was called to Canaan, right? And then all of Abraham's descendants, from him all the way down to Joseph, occupied the land of Canaan there. And the name and the fame of God would have been spread all over the place. When Joseph came along, uh, you remember Joseph's family came to live in Egypt? That's where the bondage to Egypt came in. But there was that time period in which God's mercy was evident with the people of Canaan because he was letting them know through Abraham that there is a God and this is what is right. So God's mercy is evident in that, that they simply refuse to obey God and to follow him. With that in mind and with the fact that God is righteous and just in mind, then he had no choice but to judge them and punish them for their sin. And we don't exactly like the sound of that, do we? Right? But I love what R.C. Sproul said in his book, The Holiness of God. He says, a God who doesn't righteously and angrily punish sin is an idol of our making, not the God of the Bible. God takes seriously the issue of sin. He is going to judge a person for that sin, and he's going to punish them for their sin. He has a righteous anger for the person who has sinned against him. God never, ever sits or fits inside the nice, neat little box of our minds, ever. And anytime we try to force him into that box, then we're showing the true state of our hearts. We're not, showing, we're not, showing, we're not changing God in any way. We're just showing, hey, I want to be God over, over God. The Canaanites deserved the punishment that was handed down to them. Number five, God's actions were not an example of ethnic cleansing. God's actions were not an example of ethnic cleansing. Uh, most often when, or I won't say most often, but many times when people are talking about the God of the Old Testament and looking on him much like Dawkins did, they look at him and say um, that, that, <clears throat> that God was simply trying to um, get rid of the Canaanites because he didn't like them as a people or as a race. Folks, what happened there was not racially driven um, ethnic cleansing by God. No, the people were in sin and they were a wicked people. And so God said, hey, drive them out. 
It wasn't any kind of, any kind of ethnic cleansing. It's one of the accusations that, that Richard Dawkins actually had against God, is that he was a racist God. That he treats one group um, one way and he treats another group another way. But that is completely false. The simple answer to this is that God is always searching for the person who is committed to him and following him and anyone who does not receives judgment for their action. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 5 reinforces this. And I'm going I'm to I'm read this for you. It'll be on the screen, okay? Not because, here's what, he, here's what he's saying. Um, he's saying, not because of your, Israel's, righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. In other words, it's not that you, Israelites, are receiving this land because you're a good people. The Canaanites are being driven out of the land because they are a wicked people. There were times in which the Israelites actually received the very same treatment that the Canaanites did, right? If you continue reading uh, Deuteronomy chapter 28, you're going to find that Moses is telling the people that there's going to come a, a time in which they would, just like the Canaanites, be overcome by foreign nations for their sin. God's word is clear. The person who is repentant of their sin against God and is seeking to follow him is the one who he has his hand on. The person who rejects God and pursues what they want over what God has commanded is the person who has reason to fear his judgment and his wrath because God will not share his glory with anyone. And that's what a person is trying to do. When they reject God, they are trying to promote themselves, but God will not share his glory with anyone. Number six, the removal of the Canaanites opened the door for God's people to remain holy. The removal of the Canaanites opened the door for God's people to remain holy. Go to your Bibles and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20. At the beginning, I read these verses for us, um, but I left out a verse at the very end. And just as a way of reminder, one of the things that we've seen all throughout our study here, and as we've been working through the Bible this year, is that God's requirement is holiness, right? Anything less than that is unacceptable. So with that in mind, Deuteronomy chapter 20, we're going to start reading in verse 16. <clears throat> but in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote, to, devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Okay, now pick this up, okay? Here we go. That they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. When the Canaanites and their sin is removed from Canaan, as God commanded... The door is open wide for the people of Israel to live holy lives in obedience to God. It's amazing. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me the way this works. There's something about the, the presence of sin that is enticing. There's something about seeing sin, even if, it's, even if it's from afar off. You see sin from afar off and seeing it in action, and it tugs at your mind and it tugs at your heart. That person who sees the sin may not jump into it right away, but there's a desire that tends to come up in them to make them want to know more about it. 
You see something from afar and you think, okay, that's sin. I'm going to stay away from it. kind of want to know more about that, though. I've been there before many times. I can be walking close to God and see sin from afar. And even though I, I work hard to take my mind off of what I saw or what I, what I experienced, there's something about my mind, there's something about my heart that makes me want to come back to it. And after a while, I'm not just thinking about it, I'm actually taking action in it. It's no longer a thought of, I wonder what's that, what that's like. No, it's a, I'm going to insert myself into this picture. After a while, after thinking about it, after looking on it with an, as an, with an observation, right, Ob- observing eye, then I kind of move into embracing it. You know, there's a progression that always takes place, and, and there's a progression that actually did take place here with the, with the Israelites. They moved into the land, and, um, and, and God commanded them to drive out the Canaanites because of their sin. Well, they did good for a while, for a little while. Um, but then apathy began to set in. That's the first step to sin. Apathy began to set in. And instead of driving out all the Canaanites, they said, you know what, instead, we're just going to make this group of people our slaves. But not long after apathy sets in, then there's this next stage of, of infatuation. Right? You start wondering, start experimenting with the sin. After infatuation comes the embracing of the sin. Right? I want to actually do what it is that I'm observing, what I'm infatuated with. After embracing becomes slavery to the sin. And you know, for the Israelites, it wasn't long after becoming enslaved to sin that they became enslaved to other nations. See, what God did for the Canaanites in judging them for their wickedness, God also did to the Israelites in judging them for their wickedness. Because God's standard is holiness. All along, if the people would have trusted the omniscience of God and obeyed him, then they wouldn't have ended up in the mess that they did. Here's the seventh point, number seven. God's judgment of the Canaanites is a picture of the great white throne judgment. God judged Canaan for their sin, their state of separation from him. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that there's coming a day in which everyone who has not accepted the free gift of salvation through Jesus, will appear before God at the white throne, the great white throne judgment. Those people will be sentenced to eternity in hell. Dr. Erwin Lutzer, in writing about this one time, said that this multitude is diverse in its religions. This multitude that comes to be judged at the great white throne judgment. He continues, we see Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus and Protestants and Catholics and Baptists and Presbyterians. Yes, the word Baptist is in there. We see those who believe in one God and those who believed in many gods. We see those who refuse to believe in any God at all. We see those who believed in meditation as a means of salvation and those who believed that doing great deeds was the path to eternal life. We see the moral and the immoral. We see the priest as well as the minister, the nun as well as the missionary. Anyone who has not been redeemed through their faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ is going to be included in this great white throne judgment. God's standard is holiness, always. 
It doesn't matter who you are, Canaanite, Israelite, American, European, honestly, the list can go on and on and on. God looks at every single one of us as an individual. Are we in a right relationship with God? It doesn't matter who you are. If you are not positionally sanctified and holy before God, then you will suffer the same fate in eternal death as the Canaanite did. If you're here this morning and there has never been a time in which you accepted the free gift of salvation that is offered to you by God, then here in a few moments, we're going to actually sing a song together, okay? And I want to tell you, I'm going to be sitting right up here on the front row. And if you feel the Holy Spirit tugging at you, convicting at you, saying, hey, listen, you are not there. You are not holy before me. Then come up here and talk to me. I would love to show you what it looks like to be holy before God. Folks, the Canaanites were judged because they were unholy, because they were wicked before God. So will anyone else who is unholy and wicked before God. In closing, i got two, two big thoughts, main takeaway thoughts that I want for us to, to go away with from here today, okay? Number one, there's a large gap between our understanding and God's. Always remember that. There's a large gap between our understanding and God's. We cannot expect to always understand that everything that there is to understand about God. What he sees and what he knows is vastly different from what we see and what we know. For example, um, I'll give you an illustration here with this. There are times in which my sons are playing outside um, while I'm working or maybe I'm playing with them, but, but <clears throat> regardless, I'm outside with them. The time comes for us to go inside and eat a meal. Maybe it's lunch, maybe it's supper. And uh, immediately, instead of jumping up to obey, to pick up their toys and put them away and then go inside and eat that meal, they begin to argue with me that it's better for them to stay outside and play rather than go inside and eat. Now, as their dad, I know that the best thing for them at that time is to go inside and eat rather than skipping a meal. Right? I, I know that as their, as their dad, but they argue with me. They think that they know what is best. They don't argue with me because they think I don't love them, because they do know that I love them. They simply believe that they know what is better than I do. Now, that's a great picture of what we do with God. It's an excellent picture of that. As believers, we don't doubt that he loves us. We just think oftentimes that we know better than him when it comes to issues of life, especially the difficult ones. God, I know better than you in this. When God allows something to take place and we don't understand what he's doing, folks, we know that we can trust him because he has never, ever failed to prove himself faithful to those who have been faithful to him. So first of all, we must understand that there's a large gap between our understanding and God's. Secondly, understand the difference between trust and suspicion. Understand the difference between trust and suspicion. I'll give you another illustration to kind of help, help us understand this, okay? Let's say that my wife um, asked me to do something, and I could tell by the way she said it with the urgency in her voice that it's something important. Okay, now, let's also say with this illustration that I didn't understand why she was asking me to do it, right? Now, because she's my wife and because I trust her, I'm going to actually go ahead and do it, even though I don't understand the why behind it, hopefully anyway, Okay? Ideally, that's the way it worked. However, if a stranger came up to me and they asked me to do the very same thing that my wife asked me to do, um, they had the same level of urgency in their voice, they were really asking the very same thing, 
there's a good chance that I would look on them, not with trust, but I would look on them with suspicion. Uh, what's your intentions in this? What's, what, why, are you, why are you asking me this? Why, what's, what's going on here? You see, my difference, or the difference would be that I trusted my wife because I had reason to trust. That trust had already been built up in the past. The stranger that I never met before, there's not that foundation for trusting that person. Rather, there is immediate suspicion that comes along. Folks, here's the deal. We don't always know why God does certain things, but we, we will always approach what He does and what He says one of two ways. We're going to approach Him with trust or we're going to approach Him with suspicion. How we respond is based on the way in which we know God. If you've got a relationship already built with God in which faith and trust has been a part of your relationship in the past, then chances are good when something difficult comes along. Now, he's not going to go ask you to, to kill every man, woman, child, anywhere like that, okay? God has a different plan for the time in which we are in right now, right? But when God asks you to do something difficult, you know because he's been faithful to you in the past and you know that you can trust him because you have trusted him in the past, you know you can trust him in that. However, if you don't have a relationship with God and there's not a foundation of faith and trust already built with him, when God says something or when God leads in a certain way, you're going to be filled with suspicion. I don't know if I can actually do this or go through with this. God, what are your intentions in this? God, what in the world are you thinking? Because that doesn't make any sense. There's a big difference between trust and suspicion. The person who knows God trusts God even when it doesn't make sense. You trust him that he's going to work everything out for your good and for his glory. Here's a question I want you to ask yourself. Do I tend to respond more often to God with trust or suspicion? With trust or suspicion? And if you tend to respond more with suspicion, then can I tell you this morning that God is worthy of your trust? He's the great God who created you in your mother's womb, and, and he knew what you were going to be like even before you were thought in your parents' minds. He, he, he is the God who holds the galaxies in his hand, and he knows every single one of those stars by name. If you are a believer here this morning, then God looks on you with love, and he sees the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus instead of the sin that you're plagued with. If you're not a believer here this morning or within the sound of my voice, watching online, whatever you're doing, God still looks on you with love and he beckons you to come to him. His promise is that he will accept you just as you are, no matter how you are. Folks, would you bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment? Oftentimes, difficult things come up in life. Difficult questions come up from God's Word. We don't always understand why God would do this or why God would do that. We don't understand why He would take this loved one from us. We don't understand why relationship has to break open. We don't understand those things. And you know what? That's okay. We can trust him that he's got it. But we can only trust him if we have a prior relationship with him. Folks, if you look on God with suspicion, then I want to encourage you this morning to, to look at the state of your heart. 
Are you in a relationship with him? Are you close to him? Are you following him? Does he look at you and see the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus? Or does he still have justifiable means to look at you and see the state of sin in which you are right now? My prayer for every single one of us this morning has been that we would not be filled with having to fear the wrath of God, but rather our lives would be reflective of the prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers. This is the same passage of Scripture that Pastor Rick read for us earlier. And I'm going to close with reading this passage of Scripture again. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. And now, Lord, our prayer is the same as Paul's. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.